Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I am Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So this week we're going to be talking about two topics. In the second half of the show, we will be talking about Germany's budget crisis and how it was just recently resolved and what that says about the country. But first, another big news event that was recently resolved, namely the COP summit. The data point there is 2,456. That is the number of fossil fuel lobbyists that had access to this year's annual climate policy summit which was hosted this year by Abu Dhabi. A historic breakthrough at COP28, sending a strong signal that the world will move toward a greener future. Negotiators work through the night. Well, it's morning here in Dubai, and a new draft at these fraught climate talks has landed. Delegates are waking up bleary-eyed. They'll be pouring through this That's right. Delegates have agreed on a long-term goal to transition away from fossil fuels that cause climate change. At a time when European researchers say 2023 is the hottest year That is almost four times as many lobbyists as the number that were at the previous year's edition of COP. That is perhaps no surprise, given that the United Arab Emirates, of which Abu Dhabi is the capital, is one of the world's top fossil fuel producers itself. It's also perhaps no surprise that the status of fossil fuels was a huge sticking point in the negotiations with fossil fuel producing countries at loggerheads with most other parts of the world. There was even talk that this might be the first time that a COP summit would conclude without any agreement at all. Of course, that was not the case. They managed to agree on something and we thought we'd get into the details. So the summit agreement mentions transitioning away from fossil fuels. That's the quote, transitioning away rather than, quote, phasing out as many of the participants at the summit wanted. So I wanted to ask, Adam, what is at stake in that difference between transitioning away from fossil fuels and phasing them out? And does that discrepancy have a tangible effect on the policies that are likely to result from this agreement or the investment decisions, say, that economic actors are likely to make as a result of this, this kind of agreement? I think the important thing is to place this phrase in the context of the long history of the COPs, which stretches now back over almost 30 years. And astonishingly, since we know these are climate talks, and we know the climate problem is about fossil fuels. The astonishing thing is it's only really in the last couple of years that fossil fuels as such and exiting from them has been put on the agenda. And this is the first COP at which there has been a roundhouse collective overall announcement that, yes, indeed, dealing with the climate problem means 
And then the question is how what the words are that you choose, but ending our massive reliance on fossil fuels. And up for debate at this COP were phase down or phase out. The parties got so heavily dug in on those phrases. Saudi Arabia in particular basically was going to die on the hill of, of phase out. And so I think the way they organized the compromise was to do this, you know, transitioning away from the precise phrasing is transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner. The breakthrough is that they could actually even say this. Per se, it doesn't really it doesn't really matter one way or the other, I think. The the course is going to be driven here by technology, demand by various types of subsidy policy. Those are orientated towards net zero targets, which the stock take, the, the periodic stock take on the Paris Agreement to 2015, which was supposed to organize this COP, have conclusively shown we're nowhere near achieving. And so the aim of the game at this COP was to raise ambition, and they've done that by inserting this phrase. That's what this is about. It was a, it was a compromise formula reached in the last minute to avoid a total shambolic breakdown. So there was a lot of talk at the conference of the need to cut subsidies to fossil fuels in countries around the world. I mean, that kind of policy would presumably come at the expense of raising prices for the use of fossil fuels. That's kind of the logic, you know, it would be a disincentive for using fossil fuels. But, you know, raising prices in that way could be a political problem. So I wanted to ask how politically plausible is is that kind of policy? I mean, we've all witnessed recently the brutal political costs of inflation in various countries around the world. A lot of countries even introduced new price controls on energy use, including fossil fuel energy use, to keep prices down. So yeah, how should one go about designing a policy of cutting such subsidies? Yeah, listeners may have heard like really huge numbers for the fossil fuel subsidy element that the number the IMF has been banding around is $7 trillion in subsidies. That's 7% of global GDP. That's twice the Pentagon's budget, that kind of, you know, as a share of global GDP in relation to the US GDP. We're talking really serious money there. But those figures have to be regarded, have to be understood as to what they actually stand for. The subsidies, fossil fuel subsidies consist of both direct and indirect or direct and implicit or explicit and implicit subsidies, different ways of phrasing it. And, and the, the significant difference here is that when we think of subsidies, we generally think of either you know, tax breaks for oil exploration or um, a price cap on, on petrol or gas or, or, or heating energy, for instance, all of which were introduced, as you said, during the energy crisis on the larger scale and which substantially contribute to enabling middle class overwhelmingly lifestyles in developing and emerging market economies. Because if you're rich enough to actually consume fossil fuels in a poor country, you're in the middle class. So you can afford a tuk-tuk or a little car or you know, domestic electricity consumption on a large scale, then, then you are slightly better off. So one of the things which makes these subsidies politically explosive is they tend to go to vocal, influential, up-and-coming, business-orientated groups in emerging market economies where they constitute a significant share sometimes of public spending. But the thing to do is to put all of this in perspective. That seven trillion figure is calculated by adding up implicit and explicit subsidies. And the implicit element here is overwhelmingly the largest. And the implicit element is actually an estimate of how much damage fossil fuels do without it being priced. And this is a combination of actually how much climate damage they already do and other things like, for instance, road accidents or 
the pollution effects of burning coal, which kills hundreds of thousands of people by the month, practically around the world in the places where pollution is poorly controlled and kids suffer from asthma and various types of lung disease on a huge scale. And so this seven trillion figure actually breaks down into something like six trillion and change, uh, which is implicit subsidy. And something between 500 billion and 1 trillion, which is coming out in direct monetary transfers to consumers or producers of fossil fuel. It's not quite as big, in other words, as it, as it actually looks like. It's highly politically sensitive. And the easy wins here are to phase out the subsidies in rich countries, but quite a lot of attention gets paid by organisations like the IMF to phasing them out in middle-income and lower-income countries. And that often does cause huge political eruptions and and profound tension. So there's a real trade-off here. The key thing to realise is that, of course, if you no longer give the subsidy, that's a saving. And if you are a socially egalitarian government or one just simply interested in social peace, the smart thing, of course, to do and how to answer your question, how you devise this, is you say, we're going to take it away from this money from subsidising polluting activity and we're going to hand it out to people who need it most in the form of cash benefits for instance in the hope they won't spend it on petrol or gas or electricity but they'll spend it on bread or food or you know education for their kids and you could even go one step further in rich countries where people are not in a desperate position of course the thing to do is to offer subsidies to make alternatives to fossil fuels more attractive so subsidize ev adoption for instance or home insulation for people to reduce their heating costs so these are the ways in which you think about making this more palatable got it yeah i mean in terms of giving some of those savings directly to the public that is precisely what the german government did not do in resolving its budget crisis but we will get to that in the second half of the show, but to stick with the the COP summit for now, I, I wanted to ask more in general terms whether we saw any big breakthroughs on, on climate finance. That was another big subject at the conference. Well, there wasn't any sort of huge razzmatazz thing like the GFANCE initiative that Mark Carney launched in Glasgow a couple of COPs back, where they were talking about huge piles of money that were going to be mobilized in support, like hundreds of, I don't know, the talk was of this absolute gigantic pot of capital funding. All of that has kind of paled a little bit. But this whole COP would have taken a completely different direction if it hadn't been in the last minute just before it started for an agreement on the loss and damages fund. So this was agreed in the previous COP in Egypt. And it was a breakthrough in which the rich countries, including the United States, for the first time conceded that yes, damage is already happening. Poor countries in particular are suffering significant losses already. They couldn't very well deny this because this, you know, the last COP met weeks after you know a third of Pakistan had been inundated by an unprecedented historic flood. And so there was a huge pressure there to actually offer some kind of support. And then there were 12 months of haggling over exactly how that was going to be organized and how it was going to be funded. And in the very last minute, the deal was done, which meant that the rest of the proceedings in the Gulf could proceed in a you know better spirit. When you dig into the details, though, there was a deal. There was a deal to create it, set it up, manage it by the World Bank, fund it, from rich country uh, resources. But in the end, the amounts of money that have flowed have been trivial. We, you know, we think that annual losses from environmental damage could be as high as $100 billion a year just from the climate change effects. And so far, the amount of money that trickled into the fund was less than a billion. And the contribution from the United States was utterly derisory. It was in the order of $17, $17 million, I think, um, the Biden administration has said it might be able to mobilize which is one-tenth of one percent of the damage which the United States 
you know you might think was liable for in light of the hundred billion dollar estimate. So it's it's there, but it's not really it's not very much in COP itself. I think that the big news was about a variety of other programs, notably one for food and agriculture, which is really an innovative um, area for the COP discussions to have moved into. Very important for developing countries in the long run um, to spend money both in hardening agricultural systems and in developing new crops. So I think that's one of the areas where there's been some, you know, some real moves. But this wasn't a COP dominated by the scale of kind of private sector. This is climate finance is this idea of like mobilizing Wall Street and the city of London behind, you know, energy transition. There wasn't there wasn't as much razzmatazz around that this time. Yeah, I mean, it sounds in general like the agreement basically made some marginal changes, maybe some 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 improvements towards climate goals, but not really enormous breakthroughs. And I guess I wanted to ask, for years we've been hearing warnings about how the world is not on track to meet the 1.5 degree warming target that has been explicit in the Paris Climate Agreement. And I mean, is it time to basically conclude that the ship has sailed on meeting that 1.5 degree target for global warming? And, you know, if we're not going to meet it, why, why don't we just acknowledge it? I mean, how would the structure of negotiations, how would the content of our negotiations be different if, if, if we just kind of, I don't know, we're more honest if that's what it came to about not meeting that target? I think the significance of this COP is that it kept the show on the road and it did raise ambition in making this announcement about you know, transitioning out of fossil fuels. It's quite clear at this stage that all of the significant action has to come at the national level, basically. And so all eyes are on China, the EU, and what the long-run effects of the Inflation Reduction Act and other Biden administration climate policies will be, and the American election next year. So there's a kind of sense in which folks are holding their breath. What is clear, however, as you say, is that the 1.5 degree target's just slipping away. I think on one estimate we have, you know, our current rates of consumption and CO2 emission, we have about seven years left of carbon budget beyond which we pass the point at which it becomes very unlikely that we're going to be able to stabilise at 1.5 degree warming. The reason why uh, folks cling to it is that the implication of publicly acknowledging that we're going to go beyond 1.5 degrees is extremely serious for the most vulnerable states, which is why it was sort of sort of written in, but not really made into the central target in Paris, right? Because a world of warming beyond 1.5 degrees is one in which we actually have to contemplate the fact that smaller, more exposed island states may effectively cease to exist as viable states in the next half century to a century. And that is such a radical state of affairs that no one really wants to grasp the nettle of saying, okay, cheerio, bye-bye, we now need to figure out some kind of exit strategy for you because you, a full party to the UN and this treaty, will effectively cease to exist as a state as a result of a predictable disaster which we are now failing to address. You know, And you can kind of see why a meeting which which is not ultimately based on the logic of the Security Council or the IMF or the World Bank or G20, where only the powerful states meet, but one actually that recognizes the sovereign status and thereby really the sovereign equality of all states has quite a hard time digesting that kind of scenario. So everyone clings to the 1.5 thing. It's, it's significant to say that the most vulnerable states have subsequently pointed out that when the deal, the inadequate deal was done, they weren't in the room. 
And there was a reason why they, they they presumably also need to say that, the politicians involved. And it's probably convenient for them to not be in the room because it's going to be the big states which make these decisions. It's the Indias, the Chinas, the EU, the G, you know, Japan, the United States, Russia, Saudi Arabia that make these decisions. And there isn't really an awful lot that somebody representing one of the vulnerable small island states can do other than bang the table and protest. And in the end, that's not going to sway this one way or the other. And that's kind of an impossible thing for a politician to digest, obviously. But that is the reality of the situation, I think. Okay, makes sense not to confront that, even if it's delusional. But anyway, I guess to move to another thing that was decided at the conference, Azerbaijan is going to host the next COP summit. Azerbaijan, of course, is another fossil fuel producing country. And I wanted to ask what sort of effect do the hosts ultimately have on the negotiations and, and the final agreements that come from them? I mean, what can we learn now from the experience in Abu Dhabi? Are fossil fuel countries maybe even in the best position to shape painful compromises? As you said, this was the first time we even mentioned fossil fuels in an agreement. So is this a kind of Nixon going to China moment? Do we need the fossil fuel countries as hosts to kind of shape these agreements in the direction that we need them? Yeah, I mean, you could go a little bit further than just simply it's another petro state. It's another petro autocracy with a with a with an abusive human rights record and an adventurous foreign policy. You know that too. It has in common with the Emirates, right? I mean, these are these are these are kind of power players. The Emirates are no different league from Azerbaijan, but um, nevertheless, that's the kind of player that Azerbaijan got the nod because. Under the rules of the UN Treaty, the, the conference needed to be hosted in Eastern Europe next, and Russia vetoed all of the EU members of Eastern Europe, and so you had to find someone in between. And Armenia, in the end, was persuaded to drop its opposition to Azerbaijan. It's been quite the year for Azerbaijan, like in the Azerbaijani regime, which is doing phenomenally well out of the disruption of the global oil market because they become a supplier, you know, ex-Soviet oil economy or ex-Russian empire oil economy, which now becomes a supplier of choice. They use the distraction of the Russians to humiliate the Armenians who are Russia's, you know, uh, satellite. And now they get to host this big conference. The, I think it is, it does raise questions about what one can expect from COP next year, because the chair role does actually matter uh, in these conferences. The disaster of Copenhagen is widely attributed to the failure of Danish management of the conference. Paris was a triumph. I think you have to say credit to the Emirates, like they pulled this off. People thought this would be a complete disaster with no results, and it's not that. And in that's in part because folks don't want to see the Emiratis fail. So it's not just the hosting state, but the hosting state's coalition that matters. And it's not obvious to me that Azerbaijan has that kind of backing. And so that's the worrying thing, I think. There are small, undersized states with limited you know, managerial capacity. I mean, I may be proven wrong here. But you know, running a conference like this is a huge ask in terms of just managerial capacity. Denmark failed. So... I think there are really open questions about how this is how this is going to go, but it's in the nature of this kind of you know round robin capacity. It's certainly Abu Dhabi shows that it doesn't mean that you end up with nothing, and there is a way in which calling them on their greenwashing actually has proven to be quite a powerful move rhetorically. Yeah, well, what I can certainly say is that folks can tune in next year to hear about the results of the summit from us, whenever that is, whether they're positive or negative. But yeah, we do need to stop this conversation here for now. We'll be back in a second to talk about Germany's budget crisis. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is... He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi and welcome back. The next data point is 17 billion. As in 17 billion euros, that was the size of of the hole blown into Germany's national budget for next year by the country's constitutional court about a month ago. That sent the country into a budget crisis, which had some people talking about even a potential government collapse. The crisis hinged on the tens of billions of euros that the government had been planning on using to carry out its ambitious climate policies. That was money left over from a budget designed for fighting the pandemic. The court ruled that the shifting of the money's purpose was unconstitutional under the country's debt break constitutional amendment, which limits the amount of money the government can spend and the types of debt it can take on. So yeah, suddenly the government was forced to decide which of its various promises it was going to break 
because access to the money was always kind of the foundational premise of the government, whether now it had to decide whether it was going to continue with its climate policies or raise taxes. It also put focus on the question of why Germany has this debt break at all. Why is the court telling the government how to spend money? So, Adam, first off, Germany has arrived at a resolution. How is Germany resolving the budget crisis? I mean, is the country now entering a kind of new era of austerity? Is that what we can conclude? It's certainly not going in the right direction. The Germans don't need to be having this conversation right now. The German economy is not looking strong. They're arguing about a kind of technical, legal, constitutionalized conception of fiscal policy rather than economics, what the German economy or the energy transition or German society needs. This is the wrong kind of argument to be having. But the actual amounts of money they're talking about, the figure that you cited, the 17 billion, you know, billions or lots of euros, when you place it in relation to German GDP, it's not it's not a giant amount of money, right? Germany's GDP is about 3.9 trillion euros. So 1% of that is 39 trillion euros. And so we're talking about like slightly less than half a percentage point of GDP, which is not what you want to be doing, tightening fiscal policy on these kind of issues right now, and specifically not the climate fund, but it's not, you know, it's not a it's not a total disaster. The the government considered various ways of getting around this. The SPD and the Greens initially thought they would just declare a state of emergency, which allows them to claim exception from the from the debt break. The FDP, the Liberals who run the finance ministry, were always vigorously opposed to that. They're also vigorously opposed to raising taxes, which would have been another way, progressively potentially, of dealing with this crisis. So if there wasn't going to be a declaration of emergency and there wasn't going to be an increase in taxes, then you had to think about cutting. And so there were days and days and days of agonized conversations about that. And what they've ended up doing is a, a variety of compromises, including ending fossil fuel subsidies, which is a you know or running them down, not all of them. There was a proposal to actually remove all subsidies for diesel, which would really have been a step in the right direction. Instead, what they did was remove subsidies for, for instance, the special, special subsidy that German farmers get for using farm diesel, which of course the same diesel causes the same problems, but they get special treatment. That's going to end. But there have also been very substantial cuts and accelerated cuts to the variety of um, subsidy packages that were put in place for the climate fund. And so subsidies for EV purchases, the German counterpart, if you like, the American Inflation Reduction Act, those are being phased out much more quickly. Support for solar panel productions being phased out. Um, so it was a bitter battle. And I think the general conclusion is that Harbeck, Robert Harbeck, the prominent green politician who heads the economic and climate ministry came off the worst and had to make the most substantial concessions. So this does, it doesn't put in doubt the climate fund is still there, there will still be 160 billion euros over the coming years. But it's a series of moves in the wrong direction driven by the unraveling of this extend and pretend approach to the constitutional debt break, which really had was intended to clearly prevent them from doing the sort of shenanigans they were doing. And they rather just blithely assumed, oh, well, we'll get away with it and the court won't call us. And the court did call their bluff. So yeah, let's put a spotlight on this constitutional debt break that Germany has, you know, the Schuldenbremse, as they called it uh, in, in Germany. I mean, was there ever any economic logic to this constitutional amendment? I mean, or was this always just a fundamentally political project, one that 
that is remarkable, one should point out, that was led by the, the Social Democrats inserting this into the Constitution, right? Well, it was, it was, the debt break was introduced in 2009 as a result of the joint action of what were then the two great parties governing Germany and had, in fact, of course, been the two great parties which had governed Germany, West Germany, that is, the Federal Republic, since its founding in 1949, which were the Christian Democrats and the SPD which was Angela Merkel's government at the time. It was her first grand coalition government. And a coalition government that big is significant in German history and has always been considered as sort of constitutionally worrying because it has a majority so large that it can change the constitution. Then it did anyway, because the parties were still what the Germans called Volksparteien, people's parties. And so they really did, you know, these were the two great Catholic Christian democracy coming out of the 19th century and social democracy as well. And so that was the old German political scene. And this is kind of the last big thing that the old political parties did. And they did it in 2009 in the context of the financial crisis, because they were spending quite a lot of money on bailing out German banks and doing a work creation program. And at the same time, they were confronting the longer term legacies of German unification and the slowdown of the German economy in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And that had driven Germany's debt to GDP level, wait for it, folks, to the horrifying level of 80% of GDP. And this caused a panic in Berlin. The panic was basically, oh my God, we're becoming normal. We're like other people. So we're like France or the United States or the United, well, the United Kingdom had a lower debt to GDP level at that point. But like France or the United States, in other words, are a reasonably heavily indebted capitalist democracy. And there was a sort of panic in Berlin that, that this was a sign of general kind of fiscal incontinence that, that they couldn't control. And so Germany needed to institute some rule to limit this. And so they eventually passed a, it's not a balanced budget amendment, but it's that kind of a self-limiting provision. And the argument is not so much economic as political. Well, it's economic in the sense that you claim that you're going to th cross some painful threshold. And this was the era of Reinhardt and Rogoff and fixed debt limits that you weren't supposed to transcend, uh, to go, go past. And so there was a concern that you would. That was the fundamental economic argument. Then you would squeeze out private investment, presumably, by taking up too much space in the public market. Some argument like that. But the really argument was political. In other words, democracy can't be trusted to manage this constraint responsibly. And so you need binding rules which remove discretion. Most people think a more sensible rule would have been to say, balance your current balance and leave the option of borrowing open for investment. But there was deep suspicion even about the ability of German democracy to sensibly distinguish between current expenditure and investment. And this is also an argument that is conducted within Germany's federal apparatus. So it's one thing for to say that the politicians in the Bundestag might be trusted to make these judgments, but this debt break applies to the federal level and the willingness of conservative Christian socialists, uh, Christian Democrats in Bavaria, to trust left-wing social democrats and greens in Bremen to make that distinction was, you know, fairly tenuous. So the CSU pushed for a really hard version of this, which was, no, the cap applies to all forms of spending, whether investment or current. And that's, I think, been the really decisive issue because the effect has been to throttle public investment in Germany in a really dramatic way. A lot of that takes place at the land level, at the state level, and at the sub-state level, and all of that is regulated. This is a huge part of why Germany was as tough as it was during the Eurozone crisis, because they would basically look at Greece, which has an economy smaller than that of Nordrhein-Westphalia, one of Germany's big states, and would say, right, if the rules for Nordrhein-Westphalia are the debt break, well, then clearly that should apply to Greece too. Why, why should there be any difference? Greece is just a part of a federal system, which is the EU, and we want those kind of rules to apply to everyone. Otherwise, they would say, 
you know, we can't put to German electors the proposition of supporting Greece if the Greeks don't play by the same rules as every German politician plays by inside Germany. So this thing has had huge consequences. And it's this weird blend of a conservative view of debt as a sort of looming threat to financial and economic, not just not so much stability as progress. So the idea is it slows down growth and some pretty deep suspicions about the ability of democracy to conduct, you know, credible, sustained economic policy and make sensible decisions. So to steer back to the to the current German government, I mean, has this court ruling, even though obviously a resolution has been found? I mean, has it really rendered the current German government fundamentally incoherent? Uh, you know, this government started with various promises of three parties with different ideological premises working together to create progress, as I think they said in their coalition agreement in various ways. But was that ideological project of this government based on there being money outside the conventional budget accounting? I mean, was that the only way to kind of satisfy every party's needs? Yeah, I think the short answer is yes, um, that, that was indeed the logic. And it's worth emphasizing for our listeners outside Germany just how important this new government was, right? Because it's the first government without Angela Merkel and her CDU since the noughties, since the early 2000s. And so it sold itself as this project and project, right? It was a, it was a progressive project. And the key drivers of that were not really the Social Democrats. They were the stability anchor doing old German politics, focused on their older electorate and welfare state. The key drivers of it were the liberals of the FDP and the progressive green liberals of the Greens, right? And these were the parties that were gaining the young folks' votes in Germany, especially better educated young people. It's as though you took the sort of centre-left of the Democratic Party, split it into two bits, and then ran them as independent parties, and then joined them back together again around Biden for a government. That's To me, it's always important to understand the analogies that are obscured by America's two-party system. So you form all of these people into a coalition. And yes, the, the way it worked was that the FDP was given the finance ministry, hugely controversial choice in its own right. They were then get to play at fiscal conservatism whilst you hived out all of the key decisions to um, on progressive investment to budgets which were off balance sheet. And that's where the Greens would then, with their charismatic economics minister, Robert Harbeck, would get free license to do heavy investment. And that was the way it was going to work. And one of the ways you were going to fund that was by snagging the money that had been in the COVID fund and putting it into the climate fund. So it was, you know, it was a clever, clever plan. And it's kind of blown up. I think the most optimistic read is that this is the third phase of this government. The first was the, you know, Camelot kind of 100 days kind of moment. Then basically, the two wings of the government got to fighting viciously, it really became a kind of civil war. And one thing that's emerged from this crisis is they do actually have a project, which is survival at this point. Because if we went to the polls, all of the parties, the government parties would be thrashed in the polls right now. The FDP might not even make it back into the Bundestag. The Greens would suffer a humiliating loss in votes and who knows where the SPD ends up. And no one wants that, both for their own personal survival, but also because then the question of the firewall to the AFD, the far right party, is opened and no one really wants to see how the current CDU leadership deals with that problem because it's kind of terrifying how far to the right they've shifted. And so the project now is let's not have this government fail and figure out what we can still do. So I think this is the third phase in the short history of this post-Merkel era of German politics that we're seeing now. I guess uh, then finally, I wanted to take a step back and, and ask about this court's ruling in some historic context. It strikes me as a pretty extraordinary legal intervention in budgetary matters. I mean, historically, I mean, isn't budgetary autonomy at the heart of 
democracy at the heart of parliamentarism as such? I mean, does a constitutional measure like this debt break that Germany has, does that represent a meaningful reduction in in popular sovereignty and other democratic concepts? It, it certainly does, but this is a this is a you know continental legal system, right? So the court the court is acting on the basis of a law passed by the parliament. The court can't really be blamed. The court was asked by plaintiffs. So it encouraged it encouraged the suit. The court cultivates the German Supreme Court cultivates plaintiffs, right, and says, "Look, you've got an interesting argument. Come back with a different version." So the court has coached this challenge to a law, a constitutional amendment passed by an overwhelming majority of the Bundestag in 2009. And the court is just simply saying, look, if you're remotely serious about this thing you put in the constitution, and we're here to take the constitution seriously, that's our job, then you're completely violating, you know, both the spirit and the letter of this law that you made, this constitutional amendment that you made, do something about it. So the obvious thing to do is to change the constitution again, which for which there's no majority right now. But you're absolutely right that it is a major constitutional moment because it does go to the heart of what is the centre of the representative political system. No taxation without representation essentially places fiscal policy at the heart of it. And the real question is what on earth the parliamentarians were thinking of in 2009. And my view has always been the way to play this is for the progressive folks to pursue a countersuit which is not that the government has violated this amendment, but that the amendment in 2009 violates the spirit of the German constitution. That should have been the suit that was pursued. It might fail, but it would change the nature of the argument. And we could, maybe we'd find sympathetic judges who would try and cultivate this argument and use it in their reasoning. And the interesting line here, I think, will be to use the freedom argument. So the German constitutional court ruled a few years ago that the German climate policy violated the promise of freedom, freedom of choice, that's enshrined in the constitution because it basically narrowed the carbon budget available for future generations of Germans, right? And so it mandated an accelerated climate policy so as to create the space. I would argue that the debt break, because it it forces lower levels of public investment, constrains the choices of future generations of Germans because it leaves them without an adequate capital stock, without functioning railway systems, with inadequate school systems in particular, as you will know from your kids' experience, like German schools are not the paradise is a well-funded public service. They ought to be by rights. It's a super rich country. It ought to have wonderful model schools. It doesn't because they're underfunded. All of that is a betrayal, I would argue, of intergenerational justice and the freedom promise. And that is a, an effect of this debt break, which doesn't dis- differentiate between investment and current spending. And that would be the productive line on which the opposition, I know there are folks, may have good friends in Berlin who are working with uh, you know, uh, lawyers and, and folks in jurisprudence to see whether they can, in fact, fashion a case like this. Because this, I think, is really the way, would be the way to go. It is indeed, you're absolutely right, a fundamental self-binding act, which goes beyond, I think, what any parliament should be allowed to do. But it isn't the justices that are to be blamed for this. It's the politicians who made that choice in the first place and their heirs. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, and my I can I can attest my second grader son told me that he does not like going to the bathroom at school because they're not cleaned nearly often enough and it's that traces back to this debt break ultimately. So, you know, come covid, they had no digital education capacity. The Germans couldn't teach online, you know. There's a fundamental failure. The argument is always made that too much debt is a burden on future generations. What's ignored is the fact that too little investment is too, and that's the that's the crucial issue at stake here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, thanks to those parliamentarians back in 2009 for, for not, <laughs> you know, thinking ahead. But uh, here we are. Anyway, we will stop our conversation here for now, but be back next week. 
Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone from local fishers to nuclear physicists on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. 
or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.